Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Kino McGregor. And I'm Tim Feldman. And we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Centers podcast. Well, my name is Monica. I'll be moderating for those of you who missed that. Uh, the structure of today's talk is I will basically just ask Tim and Rosa a few questions and we'll get them, we'll, we'll get to see them go back and forth for a little bit. And then at the end, we'll leave some time for Q&A. So I was thinking for the Q&A, you can either type your question in the chat box and you can type them throughout the talk if you'd like. And I'll save them for the end so I can, I can ask them myself the questions that you type into the chat at the end. Or if you prefer to ask them yourself, that's super cool too. Just let me know, like you can either send me a private message or just send a message to the, to the public chat saying, I would like to ask them a question myself and I'll, 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 like, I'll give you the time. So I'll be like, okay, now Maria wants to ask a question. And at that point you can unmute yourself and ask the question, yeah? So you'll have the option of either typing it in or asking it yourself. But if you do ask it yourself, just make sure you let me know so that I can give you the time. So like we're not asking questions at the same time. This is like Zoom, Zoom etiquette can get kind of funky sometimes. Okay. Um, so first I just thought I'd introduce our speakers today. We have Rosa Santana. She's here somewhere in the chat, in the in in one of these little boxes. And so she is a certified Iyengar teacher and yoga therapist. She started practicing and studying yoga in 1995. She had the privilege of studying directly under yoga master Bekia Sayengar, and she continues to study with his daughter, son, and granddaughter in India. She founded Yoga Rosa in 2002, which has become a respected studio in the classical teachings of Iyengar yoga. And Tim Feldman, which has a similar bio, which I thought was kind of cool. He's an authorized level two Ashtanga yoga teacher. He began his yoga path in 1992. He first studied under Lino Mile, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And then he studied directly under Patavi Joyce. And today he continues to study with his grandson, Shadat Joyce in Mysore, India. He co-founded Miami Life Center, which is a studio based in Miami, um, practicing traditional Ashtanga yoga. So that's just a very quick overview. Um, feel free to give a more in-depth introduction to yourselves if you'd like to with, with the first question that I ask. So first question, really simple. Rosa, what is Iyengar yoga? Um, hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Tim, for this invitation. I'm very excited about this. Um, what is Iyengar yoga? You know, it's really interesting because... Um, in last December, I was in India and Prashant Iyengar, who's Mr. Iyengar's son, asked a group of teachers, there were like 200 certified Iyengar yoga teachers, and he asked, what is Iyengar yoga? And nobody raised their hand because, and then of course, when they ask a question, they're not really expecting us to answer. Um, they're really just waiting for us to think about it. And basically he answered the following. So I'm gonna kind of go on that thread. Um, he really answered that depending on uh, how Iyengar yoga helped you, that's how you would define what Iyengar yoga is. So for example, if uh, the Iyengar yoga system helped you with depression and anxiety, that might be the big um, answer of what Iyengar yoga is, that it has this capacity to help you with your 
with your mind and your emotions. If you ask somebody that had back pain, they would say, oh, Iyengar yoga is for back pain. And, you know, so then it kind of spread like that around the world that there's different kind of, uh, I don't want to say that nobody really knows what Iyengar yoga is uh, because it's just so vast. Um, the gifts that he gave us and, you know, now I'll go back to like the real, the, the question on the test. So to become a certified Iyengar yoga teacher, we have to be, we have to be able to answer what is Iyengar yoga. So the simple answer is that Iyengar yoga is a style of yoga that was pioneered by BKS Iyengar. So it's named after the yoga master BKS Iyengar. He created many, many innovations in the practice, the study, and the understanding of yoga. Uh, and it's based on the sound principles of anatomy and physiology, um, but they're really heavily based on the teachings of Patanjali. So the the eight limbs of uh, Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga. Um, so it's a very vast system. It has probably the most known around the world is use of props. Although if any of you have ever heard of the book Light on Yoga, there are no props except one woman who is doing a forward bend, Paschimottanasana, and he's standing doing Mayurasana on top of her back. That's the only prop that there is in that book. So that's a clue that Iyengar Yoga doesn't necessarily always use props, um, but it can also use props. So hopefully that really confused your answer even more. <laughs> that's, that's an overview of Iyengar Yoga and hopefully we'll be able to expand on that with the rest of the questions. <laughs> cool, thank you. Cool. I, thank think, you. I think that's great because normally when you try to like refine something in yoga, you just end up getting more confused, <laughs> which is the fun part. So Tim, same question for you. What is Ashtanga Yoga? Uh, yeah, what a surprise. I admit I uh, expected the question. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Ashtanga Yoga, I think it's very simple. Uh, Ashtanga Yoga used to be called Ashtanga Vindyasa Yoga. Somewhat this like middle Vindyasa, it got um, uh, moved out of the title, I think just for simple reasons <clears throat> in the 2000s. Um, but for me, um, the first part of the word Ashtanga Yoga refers to Patanjali and uh, refers to classic yoga as per Patanjali. And in my opinion, as far as I can see, we should boil what that actually is down to its absolute minimal. It's about cultivating good and weakening bad. That's pretty much what uh, Patanjali is suggesting we should do. And he does it in many different ways. He suggests many different ways of doing that. So the first part of Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga just simply refers to we're doing Patanjali Yoga. Then the Vinyasa bit, that middle bit, <clears throat> is uh, Vinyasa. It just means it, it refers to the methodology with which we do that. And the Vinyasa methodology <clears throat> means, Vinyasa means how to play something in a very particular way. So it's a term in Sanskrit that has been borrowed from uh, grammar. And um, it is a, a the vinyasa principle um, is a principle that Patabi Joyce, who is the founder of what we know as Ashtanga Yoga in the West, uh, has developed together with his teacher, Krishnamacharya. <clears throat> and they together, as the myth goes, they went up to a university up in Calcutta, the university uh, up there, to look for a book called the Yoga Kurunda that Krishnamacharya had heard about from his teacher. Uh, Brahma Mohan, uh, Brahma Mohan Brahmacharya, 
uh, on the principles of vinyasa. So they went up there, apparently they found the book and they brought it back and uh, Krishnamacharya started to work with this principle. Um, and as Patapa Joyce used to say to us all the time, he said that he's teaching what he learned from Krishnamacharya in that way. And then the last word, yoga, is yoga. So Ashtanga yoga is <clears throat> classic yoga taught in this particular way. Thank you, Tim. So you started to touch upon something I wanted to focus on was Krishnamacharya's influence. So Krishnamacharya is, is kind of a, a similarity that these two styles of yoga have, because both Ayengar and Patabi Joyce studied with Krishnamacharya. So maybe just talking a little bit about your understanding of Krishnamacharya and Krishnamacharya's influence on Ayengar or on Ashtanga yoga. So Rosa, you can start if you'd like. I want to just uh, clarify that um, Bikas Iyengar never said that he taught Iyengar yoga. That was his students that wanted to differentiate what he was doing from others. So he always said, I teach yoga. I teach Patanjali's yoga. So I just wanted to clarify that. Um, I, what I know, and I might not know the whole story. I know little pieces of the story. Um, but I know that uh, Krishnamacharya was uh, Bikas Iyengar's uh, brother-in-law. He, Krishnamacharya, mar married his sister. And part of the reason that he ended up so close to Krishnamacharya is that he went to go stay with his sister while Krishnamacharya was expounding the glories of yoga all around India. There was a big push to, you know, bring back the, the teachings of India and make India less British and more Indian. And that would that so that was a major part of what Krishnamacharya's role was in really growing what yoga was in India because you know yoga in other places was starting to happen. But um, what I my understanding is that Krishnamacharya was a tyrant, <laughs> and that he would tell Bikas uh, Iyengar, who was not a very strong and healthy person. Um, Part of the reason he also took him on was to help him with his health because I think as a child he had had thyroid, he had had all kinds of different um, diseases and he was just a sickly person. And Krishnamacharya guided him and said, you know, you do this practice and you're gonna get stronger and then you know, you'll be able to do things with it. And it was Krishnamacharya that guided him to even start teaching because back then in those days, and it's still a little bit like that in India, we didn't, they didn't sign up for teacher trainings. They had their teacher that said, you must go and share this. So things have changed here, you know, as, you know, culture evolves, whatever. Um, but he was the, the, when he speaks, when Mr. Anger would speak about Krishnamacharya, he was his guru and he was very much respecting that. I mean, Krishnamacharya was the big branch of yoga. You know, we think about Krishnamacharya, he, he put out, like four major teachers in this game of yoga, you know, Patabi Joyce and Bikesh Iyengar, Indra Devi, who is, you know, most yoga classes now are full of women. So that was a huge influence also from uh, Krishnamacharya, who didn't want to teach Indra Devi because not only was she a foreigner, but she was also a white foreigner, but she was the friend of the Maharaja. So <laughs> Krishnamacharya had no choice. He had to teach her and, but made it as difficult as possible and once he realized how serious she was, then, you know, it, it, she opened the door for a lot of us women. 
Um, and then also Desika Char, who is uh, Krishnamacharya's son, he also did. So the, the, the four main teachers that I just mentioned, they all came to Krishnamacharya uh, at different times. So, you know, how we all evolve as teachers, that maybe if you had asked Tim and I the question, what is Ashtanga Yoga and what is Iyengar Yoga, maybe 20 years ago, we probably would have given you a different answer. <laughs> I, I'm assuming. I don't know. Maybe Tim would. I don't know. So I hope that helps. Yes, and I, I have some follow-up questions because you just sparked some things from everything you said. Um, but I think first, let's, um, let's see what Tim has to say, and then I'll follow up. Uh, about Krishnamacharya too? Yeah, and I mean, you already kind of, you already touched upon it in your first response, but if there's anything you, you want to add from okay. like how Krishnamacharya influenced um, Patabi Joyce's method of Ashtanga Yoga. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think in the West, we kind, of, we kind of call him the father of modern yoga, that Krishnamacharya is uh, the source of um, some of these uh, amazing teachers that Rosa was just talking about, and that his um, focus, his direction, his passion, his interest into yoga is very much what has spurred this asana-crazed uh, way that we are teaching uh, uh, and practicing yoga in the West, because he put that back in focus. He put the asana back in focus at a time when yoga had become a very intellectual uh, practice. Um, and as uh, uh, Rosa was, uh, was, was coming, commenting on in the, in the 30s, uh, in the 40s, there was a strong, strong movement in India to get the Brits, the Brit, the British out of uh, 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 India. Um, there was a very strong nationalist movement. There was a very strong get back to roots uh, movement there. And my understanding is that um, Krishnamacharya was part of that. Was he a nationalist or not? I, can, I cannot tell. But um, apparently he was a very strong-willed man. He was also a very educated man. He had what seems to be uh, equivalent to six PhDs uh, in our uh, Western system. Um, on top of that, he was also an Ayurvedic doctor, is my understanding. So he was so, so, so um, uh, skilled and revered for not only his studies, but also he was considered somewhat of a prodigy, prodigy in, uh, as, a, as a student uh, in this way. So he was supposed to be a quite remarkable man. <clears throat> and as Rosa said, I have also heard that he was a very, very tough, almost ruthless man to be around, that he was not fun at all. Um, in that way to his students and to his family too but uh, that's another part of the story that uh, it's just what i've heard <clears throat> um yeah i don't know what what to say what i've heard uh, also is that um in his younger years he was uh, uh, studying and studying and studying and throughout his entire life he never wanted to be called a teacher he wanted to be called a practitioner and um at some moment, he uh, met the, the king of Mysore, the Maharaji uh, Braji of uh, Mysore, and who had a lot of health problems. So Krishnamacharya helped him with those. And because of that, <clears throat> uh, the Maharaji, the king of Mysore, he invited him to come and live in Mysore and, and be a protege of the, uh, of the Mysore palace and teach under that and be a personal advisor uh, to the king. <clears throat> um, so he was doing that for a long time. And then as uh, the, the British rule ended, 
uh, all the small kingdoms of uh, of India uh, got dissolved, and the king's influence of politics and so forth and power in general was uh, diminished so strongly. So uh, there was no longer need for the king in Mysore, and with that, uh, Krishnamacharya lost his job. And he was, I think, in his 50s, 60s at this time. Um, and he solved this by moving to Chennai and stay with his son uh, and his son's family, Deshikachar, who was living in a kind of normal working class neighborhood. <clears throat> so Deshikachar started to focus on teaching uh, uh, local people with uh, all kinds of lifestyle diseases um, and start to help people in his community like that. And at the same time, uh, uh, teaching at the university, I believe it was the Vivekananda uh, College that he was uh, a lecturer at, a professor at that time. In regards to um, what I've heard from Patabi Joyce in specific, uh, Patabi Joyce just used to always say, I'm only teaching what my teacher's teaching. That was like his standard phrase for everything. Um, and just like Rosa says, uh, these men uh, in India and all the, the, the yoga charyas, the yoga aspirants in India, they are uh, bowing down to Krishnamachari as like someone very, very special. I did hear, I visited um, the, what is it called, the uh, Kaivalyatama, which is a, an ashram uh, up close to uh, Ayinga's Institute in Pune, um, that um, they are considering from their uh, perspective because uh, and um, what's his name uh, the guy over there sorry it's escaping my mind right now um i'll come back in a second they they are considering that um uh, krishna Macharya was a little too asana focused and little and too strongly asana focused and one of the advices that they gave krishna Macharya because krishna Macharya went up and studied with them for a while they said, <clears throat> try not to be so athletic and so physically based in your, in your practice there. Um, and I just thought it was an interesting uh, thing to uh, take a look at because that conversation was even going on back then and even going on towards who we think is like the epitome of spiritual power in our yogic tradition. So uh, they're poking at him like that even back then. I like that. Sometimes we I, we feel like the more physical part has just come recently, but so that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so now I kind of want to like look at these two styles side by side, and as we've seen, as we've been hearing, they both studied under Iyengar. So Rosa, you mentioned that he was more of a he was more sickly, and how did that? influence how Krishnamacharya taught Iyengar and then how did that from from that teaching from those teachings that Iyengar received from Krishnamacharya how did that influence the way he went on and taught his students? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, from my understanding um, Krishnamacharya didn't teach anything different to <laughs> because Iyengar that he was teaching you know I mean we have to also put things in perspective that back then uh, Krishnamacharya, his main audience were 16-year-old boys. So, you know, I don't know if anybody here has children, but if you have been around a 16-year-old boy, how you tame all that energy? You got to keep it moving. So what, what I understand is that 
uh, um, I, I don't want to call him Guruji because I know that you also call your guru Guruji, but BK Sangar, we call him Guruji. So we'll just stick to BK Sangar, Mr. Angar, um, that he actually received, I believe, the same teachings that everybody else received, which was the this, um, uh, for lack of a better word, would be this power yoga kind of the vinyasa. And that's what he was given. Um, I know that part of what, part of the reach that Krishnamacharya was, was, was trying to get was his work and his message out into the communities. So the way that he did that is that he had this group of boys that were his students that would do these demonstrations all over the different villages and places in India to show, and it was all being sponsored by the Maharaja. I think all the yoga teachers now need a Maharaja to like sponsor them so they can keep, you know, getting out there. But I guess that's, you know, now we have social media so we don't have to go out to the different villages and do performances. Um, but he had this, there's a story that he had this one, the prized the star student that Krishnamacharya was so tough on him that one day he ran away and he disappeared. Nobody ever heard from him again. And so the next in stardom, because Guruji, even though he started out, you know, as a weekly and sickly child, he would actually observe, he would practice, he would figure out how to do things on his own. Um, and Krishnamacharya started to, you, you, I went, it doesn't sound so good, but he was using him as the, the one to, to show the, you know, all of these uh, very advanced postures and things like that. And in one of the presentations, Krishnamacharya told Mr. Iyengar, go demonstrate Hanumanasana, which is the split with one leg forward, one leg back. And Mr. Anger said, I don't know that pose or I haven't done that pose. I'm not prepared for that pose. And he basically looked at him and said, do it or you don't eat today. I mean, this was the kind of like, we were, this is a different time, you know, we don't, my teachers never said, you know, Rosa, do Hanumanasana or today you don't get a meal. Um, so he did it and he tore his hamstring. So when we look at like, oh, you know, we think about yoga therapy and all these things, where did it all begin? So here was because Anger, he tore his hamstring and from what I hear, it took him like two years to rehab and to fix his hamstring. Um, so how did he create this system? I think maybe it wasn't that he created his, this system, is that he saw that what he was given was just do this. There was no teaching or explanation or conversation about how to do it, how to get there. You know, there weren't any YouTube tutorials back then. It was just do it. Um, and so Mr. Iyengar had a different perspective and he had to start, he had to rehab himself his own hamstring. It wasn't like he said, hey, you know, teacher, help me with my hamstring. What do I do? Um, there was none of that back then. He had to figure it out what to do and figure it out, he did. <laughs> awesome, thanks, Rosa. Um, and then on the other side, Tim, maybe you wanna talk a little bit about how, how Krishnamacharya's influence uh, like brought Patabi Joyce into creating the system of yoga that was looks really different from Iyengar. So I think one of the biggest differences is that it has a set sequence of postures and it's systematized in that way. And yeah. So how did, how did it, how did he, how did he lead, how did it lead him into creating a, a sequence, a sequence, you know, 
or just that, like the method of Ashtanga yoga. Maybe it was just more of Patabi Joyce and how you interpreted it, or it was, came from Krishnamacharya. I take that as it's. Thanks for the question, Monica. I wish I knew. I have no idea. Um, maybe some of you know if you have ever seen a, a YouTube video, or maybe you had the the uh, a class or two with Patabi Joyce when he was still alive. But if you are a little bit familiar with him, you will very clearly, the first thing you will realize is that he is not very well-versed in the English language. He doesn't have command of the English language at all. So whereas Patabi Joyce, he was a Sanskrit scholar and spoke and was fluent in that and a, a professor in that at the university in Mysore. And as he speaks his native tongue, Canada, and he speaks Hindi, just like everybody else seems to be doing in India. Um, English was like something he had very, very little knowledge about. So what we get from, so we, what we got from and what we still get from Patabi Joyce is these funny one-liners that he's kind of like taking all his information and he's uh, boiling it down to just one line. And uh, so we get things like practice, 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 all is coming or 99% uh, practice, 1% theory, and so forth. So that's kind of all we, we have to go on uh, from uh, Patabi Joyce. And as I was uh, neither fluent in Canada or in, uh, in Sanskrit, I didn't have the possibility, like very few of the Western students had over time, to have actual conversations with him. I do know that Richard Freeman, who had a good command of the Sanskrit uh, language, he had conversations with him uh, in Sanskrit and so forth. To which extent, I, I, I don't know. But what, um, see, what we are hearing um, in our uh, lineage, in our parampara, in our tradition of Ashtanga Yoga, um, similar to what Rosa is talking about, what she's heard from her teachers in the Yenka Yoga Institute, um, all I know is that Patabi Joyce seems to <clears throat> uh, be the one who, who invented or added, if you might say, uh, the, the little um, uh, ditty in the front of our yoga practice and of our Stanga yoga practice that we call the sun salutations, the Sura Namaskaras. They were uh, common. <clears throat> they are very common practice, both uh, in a ritualistic sense and a a, a worship sense, but also in an asana sense. And Patabi Joyce, he added that to Krishnamacharya's sequencing. <clears throat> and that's pretty much what he did. Then over the years, um, as far as I can see, he, he makes some small arrangements of where some asanas were going and how to divide the, the three categories of asanas uh, into six series. We have the primary series, which is the beginning, Type asanas, and we had the Nadi Shodana, which is the, <clears throat> the intermediate type asanas. And then we have advanced asanas, which these days is um, divided into four different uh, chapters. All together, that is six chapters. The first part is about getting the body <clears throat> healthy enough to not be an obstacle to putting their mind on a higher consciousness. The second um, series, Nadi Shodana, is uh, beginning to encounter subtlety and beginning to understand and work with a um, more deeper and subtle 
sense of physicality and mind and emotion and so forth. And then the advanced asanas, as far as I can, as far as I, Patabi uh, Joyce never said that, but as far as I can experience, as far as I can see, it's called Stilapaga, <clears throat> uh, which means continuous flow or, con or just continuum. Um, as far as I can see, we just continue what we learned in first and second series, and we're taking it to more and more subtle um, states by putting more and more physical challenge on the body and therefore on the mind and our willpower and our ability to control our mind and our emotions and so forth. Um, so that's about uh, what I know. Um, I know that Tabi Joy studied with Krishnamacharya for about 25 years. His examination was <clears throat> somewhat similar to what Rosa is talking about, that Krishnamacharya, he put in front of Patabha Joyce a sick man. I don't know which disease. And he said, cure him. And um, that was his examination. So apparently, uh, Patabha Joyce cured him. And therefore, Krishnamacharya gave him his uh, blessing to go and uh, teach, which he then did for, for uh, many years. Thanks, Tim. Imagine if that's how teacher trainings were these days. <laughs> Cure this person. Um, I love to hear, you know, it's obviously become very clear that the, the methods are different. And, you know, Tim and Rosa have different things to say about, about their teachers. Um, but they came from the same teacher. And I kind of wanted to turn our attention now, to, maybe more towards the similarities. And there's obviously an underlying essence that I think both methods share. Um, or maybe they don't, but I want to explore that a little bit. You both mentioned in the first question that the style draws upon Patanjali's teachings. So maybe if you want to talk a little bit about the essence of the of your practice of Iyengar Yoga, of Ashtanga Yoga, and how you feel the method allows you to practice the eight limbs, how the method of Iyengar, how the method of Ashtanga Yoga allows you to practice the eight limbs, since that seems to be the underlying similarity between the two. Or if there's another similarity, if you want to mention it as well. I'm assuming I go first now. We got the rhythm. <laughs> um, so what, what I had heard, and Tim, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I've only really studied Iyengar Yoga. I never studied um, Patabaji's, but, uh, Joyce's um, system. But what I had heard was that they were both given the same thing. So Iyengar yoga does have vinyasa. We do do sun salutations. Um, but you don't do that when you're pregnant or when you're having hot flashes or when you're having a, 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 some kind of an ailment. Um, when you first start, in, if you go to Pune in the, in the beginner classes, they're all doing, you know, what it, it, the, all the sun salutations, the jumpings and all of those poses. I think that what Bikesh Iyengar did is that when he started teaching that to the people that he had in front of me, in front of him, he realized that not everybody could do all those jumpings. Not everybody can jump, you know, could do Chaturanga Dandasana even. And so he started to figure out how can I share this work through the physical body? Because, you know, it looks to an outsider, like this is exercise. And in the beginning, it does start with exercise, with the Surya Namaskar, with the vinyasas and the jumpings and all those things. But what, Guru, what Guruji was teaching was through the use of the body. So we train the body so it has flexibility. 
we train the body so that it has mobility. And in that training, there's this movement, there's this strength and endurance that is cultivated. Then what? And this is where Mr. Anger came in, where he, he kind of, uh, he recognized that some people could not do all of those things. And then, so he created different sequences for that. But the sequences that I understand that, that Mr. Anger got and that Patabi Joyce got from um, Krishnamacharya, as far as I know, um, were not different. Um, and what the difference is, and I can only, I only know about the anger because that's what I've heard, um, is that he took that, what he found is that with the movement, you could not, he could not um, attain yoga chitta vrittini rodaha. So Patanjali's um, definition of yoga is the cessation of the movements in the consciousness. And what Mr. Anger found, and this is the big um, pioneering, you know, um, bell ringing kind of a evolution of his practice is that when he was doing that and he was able to get rid of all of his weaknesses and he got better and he got healthy. So that worked. But then he realized that he was still, you know, flowing through the poses and his mind was all over the place. There wasn't that quiet state of mind. He wasn't focused on that one single pointed effort. Um, and so he started studying in himself all the poses. I mean, he was the kind of person that would practice for eight hours straight because he was very interested in trying to um, not only understand how do we get to this yoga chitta vritti nirodaha and his granddaughter and his family, they say that at the end of his life, he was able to achieve that. He was able to, um, to get to that state that most of us just kind of dream about that I asked Prashant Iyengar, you know, does it happen like for a second and then you come out of it? And he kind of looked at me and said, Rosa, don't worry, it's not going to happen in this lifetime. And I was kind of relieved, you know, I can let go of that. All right, so I can just be noisy all the time. Um, but what Mr. Iyengar did is he not only realized that he, his students weren't all able to jump into Chaturanga Dandasana, do dropovers from Urdhva Dhanurasana, you know, that they, it just wasn't available to everybody. Yes to the 16-year-old boys, yes to the 20-year-olds, but then as the bodies begin to change, that the practice also had to evolve. And as his practice evolved, you know, really Iyengar Yoga, when, when I think about it, is really a, a snapshot. It's like we're zooming in to his personal practice that he was able to share with all of the teachers around the world what he discovered. So when I'm teaching Iyengar Yoga, I'm really kind of teaching a snapshot of what he discovered. I mean, this man dedicated his practice for 80 years. He did his practice. I saw him practicing at 96 years old, 10 days before he died. He was hanging from a ceiling rope for 30 minutes. And this is a 96 year old man. I mean, I'm like, and in and, and, and one of the, his uh, talks, he even mentioned that he thought that he secretly devised a way to be able to practice into his old age. Because back then, when a guru turned 80, they were told, stop practicing. And they would. He did not. He kept going. And I personally saw him at 96 years old hanging from a, from a rope. And I only know that he was there for half an hour because I saw that he was going to do something. And he took out, he looked at his clock. So I was like, he's going to time himself. I'm going to watch him. So I sat in Upavishta Kanasana for 30 minutes. And that, that, that was like the evolution of my Upavishta Kanasana. But I just sat there watching him. And not only was he hanging upside down from a rope in a back bend, which was all supported 
Um, there's pictures, you can Google Mr. Angar at 96 hanging from a ceiling rope in Pune. But his face was the face of somebody that is in a complete state of meditation. I can hang from that rope maybe 10 minutes tops, you know, in my 30s and 40s and 50s. This is a 96-year-old man. So I, I think that's a big deal. And I just, I have to share this because to me that blew my mind. Not only that he's hanging in a back bend like this from the ceiling, but he was just hanging there absolutely, completely in a state of bliss. And I know that, you know, when we scroll through Instagram and you see these beautiful pictures of bikini women on the beach, you know, doing some fancy pose, their face is not in that state of bliss. I have not seen that face. I've never, I don't think that I've ever felt that face, but that's the face that to me has become my, my go-to face, that that's the face that I want to be able to achieve in every single pose. And he also talked about that every pose should feel like Shavasana. I'm still trying to understand that after 25 years of what? Chaturanga Dandasana, I do not feel, uh, you know, any kind of Shavasana in this. And in his 80th birthday, he actually told us that we could achieve, he could teach us everything that we needed to know about yoga in Tadasana, in the mountain pose. But most of us don't have that kind of attention to be able to do that. So these are the fascinating little things that when you put it all together, you know, you think about there's 5,000 years worth of yoga history behind us. And to me, this man dedicated 80 years of his life. So I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel and, and try to, you know, come up with new things. I'm going to just go and study what he has come up with because there's so much. And, you know, I feel like even in 25 years of practice, I still haven't gotten to all his books. I still haven't finished. And then when I read them and reread them and reread them, there's new information that really fills me in a different way. Um, I forgot what the question was now. Sorry. <laughs> Did I answer your question? Yeah. 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 So Tim, maybe you want to talk a little bit about how uh, the practice of Ashtanga yoga points us towards Patanjali yoga. How does the method take us there? <clears throat> yes, thank you. I, I, that sounds like an interesting question. I'd love to. Um, this was so interesting to hear about your experiences there with the Yenga. I'd love to hear, you know, just like you, I have never um, practiced pretty much anything else than Ashtanga yoga. The first years I started with a vinyasa type yoga, like a power yoga, I think it was called these days, those days. Uh, the Jiva Mukti. Uh, yoga uh, shala in New York back in the early 90s, which at that time was very heavily influenced by Patabi Joy's uh, point of view. And then later I, uh, I met Lino Mila and I started studying uh, uh, Ashtanga yoga with him. <clears throat> but if I may just put in a parenthesis, uh, Monica, before we go on with that. So, uh, Rosa, you asked if, uh, if we call uh, Patabi Joy's Guruji, and the, the answer to that is. Uh, yes, uh, but we used to, or if I can put this in in different terms, I myself used to call him Guruji because Guru just basically means grand teacher, and G is an affectionate little um, uh, postfix. Is that what's called? Prefix, postfix, whatever that's called. Um, <clears throat> um, but uh, personally, I don't feel comfortable with calling Patabi Joyce uh, Guruji anymore. 
since these last years of revelations about his uh, trespassing towards women in the Mysore room. So that had taken me a long time to realize that, uh, that that was actually going on uh, over the last couple of years uh, since the revelations of Karen Rain. I think there can be no doubt in anybody's mind that it was actually going on. And uh, I certainly uh, think, I'm certainly not in doubt at all anymore, even though I never saw it myself. Um, over the last couple of years, when this whole thing started to blow up, I called a lot of my old friends, like a, a good bunch of my old friends. And many of the women said, yeah, yeah, man, that happened to me. And that actually happened to them in the Shala in Mysore while I was also in the Shala. And I had no clue. Anyhow, I just wanted to say that uh, that's one of the reasons that I don't refer to Patabi Joyce anymore as Guruji. Um, there's a, a deep conflict inside of me between the man and the man of Patabi Joyce, the, the, the one who was a very skilled, learned um, yoga uh, teacher. And the revelations that we, we have uh, come to learn of him. <clears throat> I think it's something I'll be sitting with the rest of my life, trying to uh, figure out, uh, trying to process that. I just thought I, that was a point to, to mention. Um, to get back onto uh, the, the, the questioning, uh, the question here, Monica, sorry, would you repeat your question to me? <laughs> I forgot your question. If I want to talk about yeah, so how, so uh, one common thing that both of you said about each of your respective methods is that they stem from Patanjali Yoga and the Eight Limbs. Mm. So how is that practiced through Ashtanga Yoga? So Rosa was really like, it was really elaborate in how practicing these postures brings it, like finding comfort in these postures, brings mm. us a sort of peace through the, that, that moving of the body um, through Ayanga Yoga method, through Ayanga's method. So through Ashtanga Yoga, how do you practice Patanjali Yoga? Yes, that was a great story, Rosa. I really liked that idea, like to do everything as if you were in Savasana. As far as I can hear, that is like a kind of like a um, colloquial, uh, like a popular way of saying Prayatna Shaitilya Ananda Samapatibhyam, which is a sutra from, from Patanjali that says that uh, we should look for the ease within effort. And when we find that, then we can move ourselves towards this state of Samadhi we can also call it samapati. It is a deeply uh, absorbed meditative uh, state. I don't know if that's what Ayanga, Ayanga meant, of course, but that reminds me certainly of that. And for me, clearly demonstrates that what Ayanga is trying to do is uh, Patanjali Yoga. There can be no doubt about that. I think that uh, um, Ayanga's way to it and Patabi Joyce's way to that seems to be like very opposite somewhat. Um, <clears throat> and I don't think, personally, I don't see any conflict with that at all. I, I see two ways to the same uh, idea, uh, two expressions from the same source. Um, and I think it's important to have um, different ways of going about things because we are all very different people and we all have different passions and we all have different preferences and we all have different things that speaks to us. Um, like for instance, I don't listen much to Europop, but the last couple of days I've got infatuated with uh, this singer called Sia. You probably all know her. It's probably 10 years too late, but I've been like 
like looking at Sia videos on YouTube for the past uh, three days because I think she's amazing, man. And she, somehow I, I didn't realize it because the expression, the, you know, her musical um, arrangements is this kind of like Europop stuff, which I just don't like at all. But I just realized what an amazing voice she has. Anyhow, no more about Sia, I promise. <clears throat> but um, what I thought to talk about is that when Patanjali talks about when he defines yoga and he says it is Tuni Rodaha, the chittis in the Vritti, sorry, the Vritti's in the Chitta, which pretty much means to still the movements of the mind. Um, we're talking about different ways of doing that. We think that there's two types of, of stilling. And one is the final point where there's no more movements of the mind and we are in this like legendary state of Samadhi. That's one definition of that. And another definition of that is the action of attempting it, just simply attempting it, or simply trying to control which thoughts we allow to arise in the mind and which uh, thoughts we, um, in not so popular language, we suppress. We decide not to rise, allow to rise to the surface. But that is the two definitions of, of Nidrodaha, the, the final state and also just the action of trying to get there. And I think um, in that regard also, uh, in, uh, far, in the Far East, they usually work with two different kinds of the absorbed state of uh, Samadhi or Tiana and so forth. And one is a single focused uh, type of, uh, of focus, and the other is a multi-type of focus. And both of these are, are considered, um, perhaps as far as I understand, the two main um, uh, ways to, to, uh, to go deeper within ourselves, to perhaps come to a place where some freedom starts to arise. Um, <clears throat> and what I, what I can say personally about Patabi Joyce's method, because that's uh, what I know, that's the only thing I know, is that when I do easy asanas, when I do lighter asanas, then um, I have lots of margin to fail. And my body has lots of margin to kind of do it correctly, incorrectly, kind of mediocre and not so good. And the same with my mind. When I do some simple asanas, it's very easy for my mind to start to think about other things like, oh, when are the mango tree going to bloom? Are we going to get a good season this year? You know, <clears throat> all that kind of stuff. Um, and then when Patapa Joyce asked me to do asanas that are more demanding, then my body needs to be kept more in <clears throat> a little bit more strictly. And when my mind needs to be kept more strictly, my, my body needs to be, sorry, when my body needs to be kept more strictly, then that can only be done by my instruction, my own direction, and that comes from my mind. So that means that I get like a much thinner thread of um, focus that I can allow myself to go on. Um, and I find that when I'm upside down balancing and having to do something that requires balance, flexibility, and strength, for instance, at the same time, then I have to be so optimizing everything that is within my body and my mind. I have to be so clear about it. I cannot let myself spill and think about anything else uh, than that at the time. So I have found that when I'm doing these very difficult asanas, this is often the time where I start to lose a sense of myself or I start to lose a sense of what I like and what I dislike. 
and what my fears are and what my hopes for the future is and who I am and who I am not and all that kind of stuff. And, and that starts to kind of melt away um, because it simply has to. And in the process of that, I feel that there's a, another person that starts to surface. Um, and that's, that person is, uh, if I might use a, a kind of yogic word, more pure, less troubled, less contaminated, and more useful, and more um, strong <clears throat> or more powerful. There's so much more in that person. Um, and also, I like that person better. <laughs> so that uh, is somehow what I feel like I get from my, my, uh, my practice in this uh, method of uh, Ashtanga Vinyasa. Thank you, Tim. Um, so I have more questions, but I've some questions in the chat have come up and I want to ask them because they're really good. But before I ask them, do you to do you both? Well, I guess we can do this at the end. Any closing thoughts? But we can do that at the end. So the first question is. So sorry, let me just. So talking a little bit about the, the divide that's come up in the yoga world between Ashtanga and yoga. So what do you what do you make of the severe divide in the yoga community between Ashtanga Vinyasa and Iyengar yoga? It almost feels like separate cults despite starting the same way. So Suman, if you want to elaborate on that, you can, or they can just respond to your question. Rosa, you want to go first? Oh, I was waiting for her to elaborate on the question because I didn't yeah, know I that she was here. Sorry. But I <laughs> go ahead, Suman. We can't, we can't hear you. We're getting a bad connection. So maybe if you have anything else to say, you can type it in. If not, I'll let Rosa start. Yeah, I think your connection isn't great. So go ahead, Rosa. No, like I said, I didn't know that there was a divide. Did I miss something? I missed a memo. Um, maybe I've just been in my own little bubble. Um, but if there has been a divide, I didn't know about it. But also, you know, it's human nature to always want to seek some kind of, you know, I have, I love Iyengar yoga. I have aversion to Ashtanga yoga, or I love Ashtanga yoga, and I, I have aversion to Iyengar yoga. That's just human nature. And how beautiful that there are so many different flavors of yoga now that people can choose from. Hopefully they're going to do their, their diligent, uh, um, what's it called? Due diligence and find out like, if you just want to exercise, you know, go to the gym and do that kind of exercising kind of yoga, you know, that's fine. Um, I, I, I'm kind of a little bit of a purist. So maybe, I, I don't think that I'm answering your question, but I, since I've, I'm here, I might as well talk about that too. Um, that there is, you know, now that what is yoga? Maybe that should have been the first question because if we, if we say, 
Now anything can be yoga. You know, you put on heat, it's yoga. You put on a goat, it's yoga. You know, you go to the to a beer and it's yoga. That's not yoga. Like if, if you're having to, to drink beer to quiet your mind, then you're drinking beer to quiet your mind. That's not yoga. <laughs> you gotta, you know, there's gonna be side effects. Yeah, you can do drugs to do yoga. And, um, you know, somebody actually asked Mr. Iyengar uh, about doing drugs because I think it's in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. It talks about psychedelic herbs or something like that, that you can get enlightenment from drugs. And he said, sure, you can get enlightenment from drugs, but there's always going to be a side effect. He said, if you do the, the if you follow Patanjali's yoga, you're not, the side effects are going to be positive and healthy. But if we, if we even go a little bit beyond, not just Patanjali, but what is the definition of yoga in the Bhagavad Gita? You know, there's three definitions. One of them is skill in action. So whatever you're doing, if you're doing it wholeheartedly, that's yoga. You know, if you're, if you're having uh, the, one of the other ones of my, I'm only giving you the two, so you'll have to look up the third one. But the other definition of, of yoga is the dissolution from pain and suffering. So if we're, there's so many different ways, somebody can be chopping vegetables and be in a complete state of quiet, you know, but if we're going to talk about yoga, there's, it's a whole system. And Patanjali laid out a whole manual, a map. He didn't just say duasana. He doesn't, you know, it looks like in, in all of our uh, lineages, I think in both of our lineages, it looks like we're just, you know, like um, objectifying the physical body and we're just, it's all about the body. But what other vehicle do we understand? If I tell you expand your consciousness and you're new to yoga, you don't even know what consciousness means. You don't understand that. But if I tell you expand your arms, you start at least having a little taste of what that possibility could be of expanding your consciousness. This is something we understand. That's why there's this, you know, almost like a cult. The cult is to make the body stronger and make it more beautiful or whatever. But there is something inside what Tim was referring to, that that part of us that is the authentic part of who we really are, that, that's really what yoga is. The search for that, whether you find it or not, you know, Patanjali doesn't say, oh, you may or may not get it. He just says, this is the path. So now go do it. And it's up to you if you want to do it or not. And even if you just choose a little part of it, maybe that'll plant the seeds for maybe in your next lifetime, you might get the enlightenment thing. I don't know. But as far as I know, um, at least in my book, there was no division. Um, and I just want to take the parentheses and I want to really uh, commend you, Tim, for bringing up this difficult conversation um, about the improper um, handling of uh, a student, because when students come to us, they're precious, they're vulnerable. And if there's yoga teachers out there, we have to treat them like God sent them to us. And that's why it's so important to go back to the ancient teachings and not only Patanjali, you know, there's others also that when we read into them, we can learn so much. And this is probably part of the, the problem. I can only speak for the U.S. because that's where I live and that's what I know. That in India, you know, they have all of these other aspects of yoga that are just weave, woven into their lifestyle. You know, they're chanting, they're studying spiritual teachings, you know, they have all of that under their belt. But here, we're throwing people into teacher training that haven't even done yoga. So let's start by, you know, let's understand what yoga is. And yeah, there's different levels of understanding. 
Um, and some people are going to just start in the beginning. Yeah, that's when we start, we, you know, you start just doing jumpings and with the physical body because that's going to train. That's going to start um, a little bit of an interest when they have experiences like Tim. Wow, there's something else in there. I want to know more about that. Where can I learn? Where can I find that? And I think that that's, um, if there are divisions, there's always going to be divisions. I think as long as we are born into a human body, we're going to find a way to divide ourselves, you know, and it, it, it can be in yoga, it can be in politics, it can be, you know, men versus women. There's always something that we can, that we can find to fight about. And, but yoga really, it's supposed to be union. It's not about, you know, what are the other people doing? Now this yoga is a personal responsibility for you to cultivate your own mind and work on yourself. And what a beautiful thing that we get more people out into the universe doing that, that they're just making themselves better people. What a boon. I mean, that would be the beginning of peace on earth. If everybody did that, you know, instead of pointing fingers, why aren't you doing yoga? That never works. So beautiful, Rosa. Thank you. I love that. Like the closer we get to just asking ourselves, what is yoga? The further we get away from this like perceived division between the methods. Um, Tim, do you have anything to add on to that? I just thought to say one thing. I totally agree with uh, Rosa. It's so easy to create divide. That is not difficult. Um, but to not do that, that's a little bit more difficult. That takes a little bit more effort in, in general. And I think that what, at least us, that has taken somewhat of a yogic intention or a vow, like we have to make sure that we are trying to embody that, that to not just jump on the train about uh, what is different between us. Because, oh, there tends to be something deeper than that, that is perhaps more meaningful and certainly more useful than to try to figure out uh, how we're different. Thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, I love to hear you two kind of touching upon the same things. I have one more question. There's a lot of more questions, but I'm gonna pick one that um, is maybe the simplest, maybe not. So for each of you, let me see the name. Sorry, I keep losing my place in the chat. From Sabrina in Finland. She wants to know where both of you would see yourselves without the guidance of your teachers. How different would your lives be? Is she asking about that right now or without this work completely? Because then that would be a different answers. <laughs> Let's go with right now. Okay. How would your life be different? Well, right now, you know, I have this uh, bag. I don't want to call it a bag of tricks because yoga is not really tricks, but I have this arsenal of, 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 of props, if you will. Um, I have all of this information that I've been given, that I have um, received. Now, I don't claim to have learned any of it because we receive, we're exposed to information. And, um, you know, you can be in a, in a teacher training, you can be in a workshop, and you might think in your mind that you're learning, but you're really being exposed to, you know, a, a new pose, a new idea philosophically. 
um, a new chant, you're being exposed to it. We will really learn it when we make it our own. Um, as one of my teachers in India, Devki Desai, she says, before you teach anything, you have to have done it 600 times before, because then, I guess that's the, the magic number, you lose count after a while, but you have to really understand what it is that, it, especially I'm now speaking to the teachers, before you start sharing any of this, it's not just you parroting what somebody told you to say. And, and I know that there are trainings like that, that they give you a script and, okay, now go teach. You know, that's, uh, I, I don't think that's the best way to, to teach because I think also that it's good for a student to be able to have a teacher that they can kind of relate to them. You know, um, I'm segueing a little bit because now there's this whole also um, conversation about inclusivity and diversity in the yoga world. And if it's, you know, if it's always the, the, the nothing against you, Tim, but the male white teacher, you know, that that's all a student sees, they can't really relate to that, you know, or they might, if, if somebody, if, if like, for example, somebody's coming in with trauma, they might not want to be in a room with a white male because it could be a trigger for them. So to go back to your question, how my life would be different right now, um, some of you may or may not know that I actually got the COVID virus in, um, in the end of May. And I was in bed for six weeks. And I feel that because of this 25 years of yoga under my belt, I knew what to do because one, you know, like two weeks before I got sick, I was jumping around, I was dancing, I was, you know, doing, you know, everything, um, working on my back bends, uh, working on my arm balances and just doing a really strong practice, you know, which was fun. Some days I'd be rocking back and forth. Other days I'm doing, you know, Kanasana for 30 minutes. But when I got sick, there were so many things I couldn't do. Um, I couldn't lie on my back. So my go-to pose, if you know what Suptabhata Konasana is, if you don't know, you have to Google it. Um, but you're lying down on a bolster with your legs and the soles of the feet together, cobbler's pose. You lie back and you stay there. Like, I think some systems call it the goddess pose. I totally can relate. I would totally name the, change the name of that. But that was always like my restorative pose um, when I was on my period or when I was having, you know, some kind of um, hot flashes or whatever. And to me, I had my medicine cabinet was Iyengar yoga, that I could not even do a child's pose without putting a bolster on my abdomen and my chest because when I would take a deep breath in, it felt like I had cotton in my lungs. So thank goodness that I've been practicing pranayama for over 15 years because, maybe 20 years, because I was able to send my breath to, I remember that Guruji used to teach that you want to make your breath so thin like a dental floss. And so I've been cultivating this pranayama practice where I was able to breathe into the sides of my ribs. And I just imagine myself like a fish with gills. And I honestly, I don't know. Um, I couldn't do uttanasana. Everything was painful because COVID creates an inflammation of the lining in your blood vessels. Well, your blood vessels are everywhere. So everything hurt. My brain felt like it was going to explode. After the third week, I was getting heart palpitations. I'm still not well and back to my practice that I had. I have faith and that's all I'm going to do is, is Iyengar yoga. And my goal was just to stay out of the hospital because I was like, if I go to the hospital, they're not going to let me do yoga. 
then I'll really die. Um, they're not going to let me, you know, drink my spring water with my little things inside of them, my herbs or whatever. And they're going to feed me plastic food and not let me sleep. So I'm going to die. So I said, okay, if I'm going to die, at least I'm going to die in a yoga pose. <laughs> and, and it'll be completely like a restorative pose. But everything, I could only do child's pose, downward facing dog pose, and uttanasana. Those were the three poses that I could do. And I was trying everything. I'd do handstands, I'd do headstand. I'd get dizzy. I would feel terrible if I over, I couldn't do any standing poses. I still have um, a little trouble doing standing poses. I have to do them with support. I might do one standing pose and I'm slowly building up my strength again. Um, and it's been like, I'm a yoga therapist. This was the hardest case. So like, you, I have to work on myself so that, first of all, I don't die. And second of all, so I can prove to people that this yoga shit really works. <laughs> So those are, those are my motivating factors. And also the third reason was I, I was really angry thinking, I can't believe I'm feeling like this. I can't die because I haven't finished writing my book. <laughs> so that was the third motivating factor. Um, I think that I had BKS Iyengar and I've actually studied more with his daughter Gita than with him. I did get to study with him three times and they're like magical times, never been in front of a guru after that. And Gita Ji was also a goddess. She was also the uh, guru in her own way. And having a, a woman, a female guru was for me very empowering. And so I kind of had them in the back of my mind when I was a little delusional because it affects the brain. And I wasn't sure if I was dying and I was really seeing them or if it was just my own Britties that were just out of whack. But I, when I didn't know what to do, I would say, hey, Guruji, help me out here. And somehow I would like know what to do. And sometimes it was like, um, I stayed, I, I can tell you that child's pose saved my life. Probably I would sleep like that because that was the only way that I could breathe. So to answer your question, I don't know that I would be here. Um, and during COVID part of what happens, you get severely depressed and you get anxiety that, you know, I actually had contemplated jumping off the balcony. I live on the eighth floor of my building when I was sick. And when I realized I hadn't felt like that since I had postpartum depression, oh my God, I'm telling you all my, my, all my dysfunctional life. <laughs> That's going to be in the book when that comes out. Anyway, um, and I recognized that because I hadn't felt that in 25 years. My daughter's 25 when I last had postpartum depression and I contemplated jumping off the balcony back then, 25 years ago. And I actually had my husband uh, put a lock that was really high and hide the key. And I lied to him and I said it's so that the kids don't get out there because I had three children under the age of six but it was really because of me. So I felt that again, and I immediately recognized it. I got out of bed, and instead of walking to my balcony, I walked to my yoga mat. I put two blocks down on the floor to elevate my hands, and I put a bolster under my head, and I did Adumukashvanasana, downward facing dog pose, and it quieted down all that delusional crazy stuff that was going on in my head, because the, the brain was not, like there's a confusion in the brain when you're sick. I mean, it was just a really horrible experience, and I'm really very grateful to have had what I think BKS Iyengar and Gita Iyengar next to me by my side. And I was also, throughout this, I was also taking classes with Abhijata, who is uh, Mr. Iyengar's granddaughter, and also with Prashant, you know, on and off. And I would just do whatever I could do, and they would give me some pointers in what I should do. So I didn't feel alone. So this was the biggest, uh, the biggest deal of my health in my life ever. Oh, sorry for the long answer, but you asked. <laughs>
No, that's great. I think that paints such a beautiful picture of how yoga has helped you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so amazing that you're doing better. That's awesome. Um, Tim, how's your life different? How's having your teacher in your life changed where you are today? What I hear from Rosa, God bless Rosa that you're feeling better. We need you here in this world. <laughs> um, just like Rosa, for me, teacher is everything. Like without, without a teacher, I feel honestly pretty lost uh, in general. Um, without teacher, that for me means no access to knowledge. And um, I generally doesn't feel very, I don't feel very smart. So I feel like I need other people in my life to help me figure out <clears throat> how to insert myself into this huge chaos. Um, and I find that through the yogic uh, studies, I find myself um, navigate my, within myself and outside of myself more satisfactory i could say like at least to my own personal satisfaction like i feel um it gives me a, a, a much better quality in my life it makes me uh, take better choices uh, and, and and so forth um <clears throat> i tend to hit my my head around the all the corners in this world a lot and i feel that uh, by having a teacher that that gets better um <clears throat> now i've had to do some deep soul searching of course because of the issues with some joyce about what a teacher means um and um Patab joyce was a, a someone that i i i i saw as um a higher potential of of, of uh, human potential a, a higher version of human potential now i don't really know where to put that anymore uh, but <clears throat> luckily in my soul, i met other people uh, that i find is of a deep inspiration to me and uh, these days uh, just like rosa i uh, uh, practice with uh, the family of uh, pataba joyce uh, shara joyce and that is uh, very useful uh, to me now one thing that i like i find that the yoga sutras is my bible <laughs> i go there a lot you know i think about it and reread it and and so forth and these days i'm teaching it and as i'm teaching it i i i, I get new connections and i understand more so that's a very privileged place for me to be uh, <clears throat> in the in the classic tradition teacher is guru and the guru means someone that can lift the heavy the darkness over your shoulders remove the the darkness and let the light shine um a good friend of mine kay isler she uh, is well versed in the buddhist tradition and she in, in the buddhist tradition apparently they it seems to me as far as i understand on her um, they work with the principle of guru in a little bit different way they work not with the principle of a person they work with a with a notion that they call the guru field so so what they work is with is where do you learn from and that there's more than one place that you can learn from there's more than a person you can learn from and in the period honestly uh, post the whole thing with Tabby joyce i started to figure out where do i learn and who is where is the information coming to me that i feel is uh, of significant substance to me in my life 
And I found that that came from my students. I felt that my students showed me what I needed to know. Uh, and <clears throat> not only showed me what I needed to know, but also give me, gave me ways, showed me ways to, uh, to understand generally uh, in better, uh, better. So somehow that whole, for, for the time being, that is a, a, a major part of my guru field. That is the students uh, who my, um, have the good karma, the good fortune to be around every day. I, 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 I get a lot from that. But without teacher, holy cow. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. I think that's an inspiring way to keep going by looking at your students. Um, so there's a lot of really good questions, but they're a bit too, like, I, th I think they're like a little bit too big to kind of, we're, we're already 13 minutes over. So maybe that just means we need to have another chat. Um, but I wanted to leave it and close it up with Rosa and Tim, if you have any closing thoughts, or maybe you have questions for each other you want to ask, or maybe you have nothing, either way is good. So Rosa, if there's anything else you want to add? I'm always a really big uh, proponent of um, practicing. You know, Tim mentioned how Pataba Joy said, do your practice and all this coming. I think that that's really important in our um, in our own for our own good. That you know, Gita Iyengar used to say that a teacher can't give you the secrets. You have to do your practice. And I know that even when I go to India and I'm taking a class with Prashant, and he's talking some philosophical um, you know talk, and we're in some pose, that I make these discoveries. And I think that. In a way, in the U.S. or I don't know, in the West, the the idea of, of a yoga studio. Yes, we need a yoga studio. I have a yoga studio, but I think that, in a way, it's kind of um, doing a disservice to the the whole world of, and I'm talking about the inner world of yoga, not the external world of yoga, because the students are getting attached to being spoon-fed the information. I always thought that I was just a really unlucky person because I would see my teachers once a year. And I thought like, oh, everybody else gets to go to classes. But from the beginning, I made a decision that I was only gonna study with the best teachers in the world. And I've stuck to that. And I only study with the best Iyengar yoga teachers in the world. And what does that mean? When I say the best yoga teachers in the world, it's not that they can do the fanciest poses. The, they can. A lot of them can. And, you know, what some people might consider a fancy pose to me is no big deal. But, you know, when I look at somebody else and I see, you know, like I can't do a handstand in the middle of the room without somebody there spotting me, you know. And for other people, that's no big deal. You know, a gymnast can do that, but I can't do that. Um, and I think that having... Like I was saying, you get exposed to information, take it with you. So you're not going to, it's not like going to yoga shouldn't be like going to the gym where you're going there for a mindless workout that somebody, and I know that other systems, they use music also, that's just bringing you outside of yourself. And sometimes you need to do that. It, I'm not criticizing anybody else because I think that everybody has their own path. And even 
though I do Iyengar yoga and Tim does Ashtanga yoga, we're all headed on the same path. It's like, you know, from, I live in Hallandale Beach. I can take A1A to go to South Beach. I can take 95 to go to South Beach. I can take a freaking helicopter to go to South. There's many, many different ways. And we all have to find our way. And some people sometimes like to take, you know, different routes. And, but whichever route that we're taking, the most important thing is that we develop our own practice that is not always, I think that, the, the yoga practice and, and, and yoga should be like a relationship. All of us need group time, circle time with others. We also all need having a confidant with one person, but we also need our alone time. And I think that in the practice, it also applies that we have to have the ability to be able to practice on our own and whether somebody gives you a sequence or you find it in a book or you look up at some YouTube tutorial or something, but have a practice where even if it's 10 minutes, you're just with yourself because you can't run away from yourself. Practice with a friend because a friend can guide and help you and give you some feedback. And then practice with a teacher so that a teacher, there's an energy also that is formed when there's a group but you can't only be in the group. People that are always seeking that group, they don't know how to be alone. They're running away from themselves. And then the people that are only in by themselves, they need the group. So yoga is really about balance. We have to balance our lives. And instead of going into this division of Ashtanga versus Iyengar versus Ashtanga, you know, we're all doing the same sequences. You know, All you have to do is figure out what works for you today. And today you might have only child's pose with a bolster under your belly. Other days, you might be doing rolling halasana, pashimottanasana 30 times into utkatasana and chakrasana, whatever. Um, but you won't know the full flavor of yoga until you begin your own practice. So if I have to leave anybody with anything, and I'm taking that from my teachers that have brainwashed me into that, but I'm also taking it from my own practice when I would go and study with a teacher one weekend and then I would take the whole year to try to understand what I think that I learned, but I was really exposed to. Um, so that would be my message. Practice. <laughs> Thank you. And I think a message that we need to be reminded during these times, especially when we're home and it's hard, we just gotta keep practicing. Tim, any closing thoughts? Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks to to you, Rosa, because you're the one who suggested this chat today. So thank you so much for suggesting this. This was super uh, a nice way to spend my my Sunday. I really enjoyed it. Um, even though the conversation became a little more formal, you know, than sitting down over chai at the local Starbucks or whatever you get there. Um, and then, yeah, I can only agree with Rosa. I think I started out saying that as far as I can see, yoga is about finding a way to cultivate what is good. As far as I can see, that's what yoga really is about. And I think that for me, it works very well to take that serious and figure out how I can do that. As, yoga, as Rosa says, I'm going to call you yoga from now on, Rosa. <laughs> as Rosa says, um, to have a personal place where to cultivate it is important. That it needs to be cultivated but it's not enough. Like we need to take it out into service. We need to take it out into the 
places around us for, for anything to thrive uh, like that. And in the process of doing that, we have to constantly, in my opinion, I at least need to do for myself, cross-reference. Is what I think is well-intended doing anybody harm? And uh, in the process of that, you know, try to keep refining what it is that we are cultivating and what it is that we are um, sharing uh, in that way. Yeah, and then commit to that. Put in the effort. Every day, every minute, every breath. Thank you also to you, Monica, for, for um, being so awesome and being the moderator uh, today. And thank you, everybody who came in. I can see, Herman, you are at work in the Jackson Hospital there. Um, this is Herman. Maybe you can see, say hi, Herman. Herman. He's saving all the uh, coronavirus um, cases that has to go to hospital. Um, so thank you very much for that service. That is certainly yogic. Um, and thank you to everyone else uh, that came in here today. Go do your part, whatever, from wherever your passion is. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Rosa. Thanks, everyone. I wrote down the questions that I didn't get to. So maybe for next time. Sorry. There are big questions but I wrote them down. Okay. Rosa, you're gonna say something? I was just gonna say thank you and blessings to everybody. Thank you, Tim. It was good to sit down with, uh, without chai, but chatting. And thank you, Monica, for bringing it all together and keeping us all organized. 